playing with the microphone, so sorry if there's some disruption there and things came undone a little bit. Uh, always like swimming upstream with all those kids, and it's amazing. I love it. it it's actually, uh, as I was walking up, it made me think a lot of, as a youth pastor, I played a lot of dodgeball, uh, and that reminded me a lot of dodgeball because I had to dodge a lot of kids. And I remember there was a lot of side-to-side -side movement in dodgeball, and that's what that was all about right there. So uh, it's, it's a blessing. I love seeing it. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can gather together this time and study your word together. We pray for clarity of your word. Help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So my kids are at a phase in their life, or just an age in their life, where they are very curious about the largest number in the world, the largest number in existence. And I think there's this idea that there is, you know, there is an actual largest number, that there's not an infinite number, you know, because the, the idea is once you discover the largest number, you can just add one and get the next largest number, right? But I, I don't know if they've quite gathered that yet. So there's a constant conversation about what is the largest number? And there's a little bit of an argument. And then sometimes they'll, you know, say, well, the largest number is blank plus one or blank plus 100. And so there's just this constant debate. And really when it comes down to it, we can't, our brains can't actually fathom or comprehend the largest number. In fact, our brains can't comprehend even close to the largest number. I mean, we have these terms, and, and we talk about them. When we talk about millions and billions and trillions and a Google, I remember actually the first time I used the term Google in school, and my math teacher, I was in seventh grade, I was like, hey, I think the largest number is, is a Google. And my math teacher said, you just made up that word. And now there's a whole website dedicated to Google, and I'm like, oh, I wish I could go back and talk to him. But anyways, so, so we talk about these numbers, right? But but can you actually, can you brain comprehend a Google, a Googleplex? What about a trillion, a billion, a million? I think we even struggle with thousands. If you were at a stadium and there was 80,000 people, that stadium could fill out 80,000 people, could your brain actually comprehend 80,000? Let's say, you know, there were 10,000 people missing. Would you even notice? 10,000, that's a huge number. And yet, a stadium of 80,000, 10,000 missing, 70,000, we probably wouldn't even tell. We couldn't even comprehend 10,000 missing people. Our, our brains just have a difficult time. There are a lot of researchers that say our brains reach capacity with 150 relationships. Like after 150, our brains just kind of like, oh, no, we're going to kick some of those relationships out because we just can't keep up with 150. I think those people were really talented. I'm probably like 10. With about 10 relationships, my brain starts working overload, right? We struggle with comprehension on a large scale. So I want you to do something for a second. Take the largest number you can think of just the absolute most extreme, and your brain can't even really think about it, but you've got a name for it. Think of that number, times it by infinity. 
and you've still only got a glimpse of the greatness of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we continue our study, Better Together, a walk through Ephesians. So turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians 3. We're going to walk 14 through 21. This is a, a, the closing of the theological section. Paul always did this with his letters. He would, he would lay out this great theology, and then he'd transition into, based on this theology, this is how we should live. So he's starting to get to this closeout of the theological section. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power or with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear the language here? It is an over-the-top kind of a language, right? It is an over-the-top prayer. And so we've been walking through this, and, and Paul introduces the subject. He, he gives us in chapter 1 the, the spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with, the, all the spiritual blessings. It's not part, it's not some. And he walks through all of these spiritual blessings, and then he actually gives us another prayer that we find at the end of, of verse or chapter 1, I should say. At the end of chapter 1, he gives us this prayer, and we see some, some of that over-the-top language there, like in, in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. And so based on this prayer, then we get into chapter 2, and he starts talking about God's grace. And the first section of chapter 2 is God's grace towards us individually, and how we were separated from God because of our sins. He says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Dead meaning you were without the ability. You didn't even have the ability to please God. It didn't matter how hard you worked. It didn't matter about all the good stuff you did. You still couldn't please God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, because of his great love and his mercy towards you, made you alive together with him. So he reconciled that relationship that when we sinned, we separated ourselves out from God, we tore apart, we broke that relationship into pieces, and God was able to reconcile and make that relationship new. But he doesn't just stop with our relationship with him, he then also reconciles our relationship with each other, and that's what the second part of chapter 2 gets into, that he has created in him one new group of people, that we no longer need to be divided on ethnic and cultural ideological. That's the way the human race likes to go, is we like to divide ourselves. We like to see other people as the enemy. I am affiliated with this republic, or with this political party. You are affiliated with that political party, and so I hate you. You are wrong. I am right. Let's divide. You can't possibly actually be human, can you? That's what we like to do. And what he's laying out here is that in Christ, 
we are one. We are united together. That we put up, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we no longer need to live divided lives, but that he can bring us together. And all these divisions that we love to make, he tears down those walls and unites us together. And then chapter 3 starts off with, for this reason. And, and most theologians think that he's going to jump into this prayer that we're going to examine today. But then, but then he digresses. And he goes off on this, on this four-sentence tangent about uh, explaining about what the mystery is that God has brought us together and how this plays out and how he's bringing this mystery to the world. And, and it ends with this piece of encouragement because there's this idea that when he lays out for this reason, I, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, that these guys, this audience starts to lose heart. They're like, wait a second, Paul's in prison? Oh no. And so he gets into this tangent and then he ends it with, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And he's basically what he's saying is, it was worth it. Everything I've suffered, the, the beatings, the imprisonment, the time that they stoned me and left me for dead, it was worth it. That's what he's saying there. And that jumps him back into this prayer. So the, the for this reason in verse 1 is basically the same for this reason in verse 14. And it leads back to the first two chapters of it is because of God's grace. It is because of God's grace that I bow my knees knees before the Father. Now, it's interesting, in Paul's day, we often think about bowing our knees when we think of prayer. We think of prayer as this time where we have to bow our knees and bow our heads, but in Paul's day, it was actually more of the standard to stand and pray. And in fact, it's still a a Jewish custom today. If you ever go to the Welling Wall in Israel, you will see Jews lining up along that wall, and they're not bowing their knee, they're standing and praying. And so that was the custom. So for Paul to say that I bow my knees shows his uh, intensity in this prayer. That it's not just a flippant prayer that he's making. It is an intense prayer. So he bows his knees before the Father. This term, the Father, is showing his intimacy with God. Today in the uh, Sunday school class, the uh, church history class that Christian was covering, he talked a lot about deism, that that there was this idea that God created and then left us to our own. And what Paul's showing here is that deism is not, in fact, true, that there is an intimacy that we can have with God. Deists think that there is no intimacy with God. Paul is using the term father, and there is an intimacy here that is real. Now, a couple things we need to take from that is, number one, uh, some of us have not had great relationships with our fathers. There are some people here who were abused by your father. And so for Paul to use that terminology, father, it doesn't stir up ideas of intimacy, but maybe ideas of abandonment. That's not the way God created. God didn't create the family system 
who didn't create fathers who leave wounds. So, for us as Christian men, this should be an encouragement to look towards God on how he modeled fatherhood for us. He is not an absentee father, and we shouldn't be either. There's kind of this tradition in America that, like, the family is a hierarchical system, and, like, the dad's at the top, he's the CEO, and then there's the mom, and then the children are down here. And if the mom, if the children want to reach the father, they got to go through the mom, right? And that's not what we see in Scripture. The outline for us fathers actually is to be intimate with our kids, to know them personally, to invest in them. So this should be an encouragement for us fathers. We need to be pursuing our children. We're not the CEOs of the house. But number two, for those of you who have father issues, who have struggled with fathers who have abused or abandoned you, this can be a place of healing. That God is your true father and, the, and he recognizes that you have a hurt deep inside and the only way that hurt is truly going to be healed is through God. And what's neat is when you get plugged into a church, he begins to raise men up for you that fill in that hole. Jen and I were actually just talking about that this morning because um, if you don't know her story, I won't share it all with you because it's her story, but um, her dad left some huge scars. And we were talking about the church, and actually I got a present uh, just yesterday from a mentor pastor that I had. Um, and, and so I pulled it out of my bag this morning to show Jen this book that he had sent me and a little card that came with it. She looked at me and she said, he is the best father I had. He took the role of father for Jen. And what's crazy is he didn't, like, do a whole ton. It wasn't like every week he was pursuing her and taking her out. But he showed her that she was valuable. He showed her that men can treat her well. He showed her what it meant to be a godly father and a godly man. So this one man living out his assignment, being a good steward of the assignment God had given him, changed the trajectory of Jen's life. You might have father issues. That's one of the reasons why the church is important. Because there are men here in this church that can start to show you what it means to be a godly man. Men, this is one of the reasons why it's so important to take your assignment seriously and to live in God's grace. Because there are people with father issues that are looking towards you. And who knows how God is going to use you to heal the wounds that someone else has inflicted. So he calls him father, and this reveals an intimacy, a deep personal intimacy. It also just makes me think of when my kid gets hurt, he doesn't run from me. 
but he runs to me. The other day, Ezra was hammering away on something. He decided that he wants to be a construction worker. I don't know what triggered that idea, but he's got a hammer now, and he's running around hammering things. And, you know, when you're running around hammering things, eventually you will hammer your finger. And he hammered his finger, and he came running, and he wrapped his arms so tight around me, and he was looking for that comfort and that love. That's the intimacy that Paul is painting here. So when you're hurt and when you're injured, who do you run to? Do you run to God or do you run away from God? There is an intimacy that we can have with God where when we're hurt, we can run towards him. That's what he's revealing here. So he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This term, every family, there's a couple different terms for family in the Greek. This one is, uh, is patria. Now, what's interesting about that is it's connected with the term father. So Paul is doing a play on words here, and I think it's actually tracing back to this idea of a family line or a family lineage that traces back to the father. So some of your translations have like every family in heaven on earth, and so some people would say or some people think that what that means is that God is the creator of everything. Now, that's true. God is the creator of everything. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. I think what Paul is getting at here is that he is the father of every Christian. Of everyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ, he is the one that we can trace our lineage back to. So we are a family that he has united together, and we can trace ourselves back to him. We have our lineage in him. So some of your translations will even read, from whom every Christian in heaven and on earth is named, or every believer, that according to the riches of his glory, may he glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So in verse 16, the prayer switches. So we've got a great prayer here, and there's actually going to be three segments. So we've got the introduction. In verse 16, we've got uh, a, an outline of steps, or some theologians think it's like a telescoping uh, idea that each one will build upon each other. But these are steps, and they're going to build upon each other. In verse 20, we're going to switch to a doxology. So in verse 20, he's going to start praising God. But in 16 through 19, these are steps that build upon each other. The final step is going to be filled with all the fullness of God. And what he's basically saying here is that the, this final step is going to be us living a mature life. Now, everybody wants to get to step five. I'll call this step five, what we find in verse 19. Everybody wants to be mature, right? And part of being mature is actually living out how God has full, fully created you to be. Everyone is a little bit different. Everyone has different bents. Everyone has been created uniquely and wonderfully made by our creator. And we all want to live out how God has uniquely created us. But not everybody wants to walk through these steps. And so he's giving us these steps, and these steps build upon each other. So the first step, the, the term that in the Greek is hina. So this, these steps are kind of outlined by that hina clause. So that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. So this first step is being strengthened. The term strengthened here means to be fortified, meaning to be prepared to take a hit. 
The world is going to throw things at you. Are you prepared to take that hit? And he describes how we take that hit. There's actually a clause before strengthened and after strengthened that, that describes how we become strengthened, how we become fortified, and it's according to the riches of his glory. So God, what he's saying here is God has a vast amount of resources that we have access to. Are you accessing those resources? And not only are you accessing it, but that we would be strengthened with the power through his spirit. So are we letting the spirit help us access those resources? And where do we find the resources? Well, I think for Paul, it's turning back to chapters 1 and 2. That, that through scripture, we have those resources. Theology matters. Doctrine matters. What you believe will dictate how you behave. And you can talk about how you believe in scripture all you want. You can talk about theology all you want, but your behavior will reveal if you really believe it or not. Oftentimes, my bad behavior reveals my bad theology. So when you yell at your kids, what is that revealing? When you get angry in traffic, what is that revealing? It's revealing a theology issue. So when I yell at my kids, yes, I'm a pastor, and yes, I yell at my kids. I don't always want to yell at my kids. Sometimes I do it. I've done it in the past, and I'll tell you what, I will do it in the future. And when I do it, what I have to do is look back and say, okay, what is this revealing? It's not my kid's fault that I just yelled at them. So often we want to blame other people for our sin, right? I, I was, you made me so angry, I just had to yell at you. That's false. I had anger in my heart. And my kid gave me a great opportunity to let that anger out. Kids are great revealers of our idols, aren't they? Man, I've got a lot of idols. And they just bring them forward. So what I have to do every time I yell at my kid, I have to go through and I have to search my heart. And I have to say, what idol is this revealing in my heart? What bad theology is this revealing in my heart? And in all honesty, it's almost comes down, it almost always comes down to this idea that I'm God. Now, I know I'm not God, but oftentimes I want to play that part. Oftentimes I want to usurp his power and his control and his authority. And when that gets stepped on, I get angry, and then that comes out with me yelling at someone. So you see, we, we live out what we really believe. And then so what's the solution? The solution is to go reorient my heart to good theology. That's why theology in the Pauline epistles, theology always comes before the application. Most of us want to jump straight to the application, right? When you memorize scripture, what do you typically memorize? You memorize the application. I mean, how often have I pounded into my kids' brains? Proverbs 15.1. Now I'm going to forget it in my... <laughs> Proverbs 15.1, uh, remind me. <laughs> what was that, Jen? 
A soft answer, there we go, thank you so much. A soft answer turns away wrath, uh, but harsh words stir up anger. There we go. So I pound that into my kids. I mean, it's good functional application, right? If you are using soft words, even if people are mad at you, you are going to turn away that anger. But if you're using harsh words, you're going to stir up some anger. You're going to stir up that wrath, right? That's solid application. But what about the theology that helps my heart get there? See, so often in the moment, I'm thinking about how good it would be to just yell at you. I want to give in to my wrath. I need to go back and I need to study theology about who God is, about how I can trust him, about how even in the worst moments of life, I can still trust that God is good and that God can turn whatever horrible thing I'm going through into something great. And it's through that that then I can take the application and run with it. So those are the riches of his glory. We need to study scripture. Theology matters. Doctrine matters. We have a huge resource here. I love the way I was in a meeting earlier today, and uh, somebody in the meeting said, we have God's brain right here. We can examine God's brain right here. I love the way she put it. It's true. If I want to know how, how to live my life, I've got the resources right here. And what's amazing is when we engage the Spirit and we humble ourselves and, and submit to the Spirit, the Spirit then changes our heart as we read Scripture. So that's the first step, is reading Scripture and submitting to it. So often we can read Scripture, but we just use it as a weapon, right? Like, I'm just going to throw these verses at you to make you feel horrible and make me look great. And that's not submitting to Scripture. So what we need to do is submit our our hearts to scripture so that we may live it out and when we do that then god fortifies us in our inner being that means like he fortifies our innermost self he fortifies us ready to take a hit so when all those pains and all that trial comes we can stand strong in christ and then he gives us the next step so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith now when you put your faith and trust in Christ, if we all we have to do is jump back to Ephesians 1.13 and we see that we've been sealed by the Spirit, that the Spirit indwells us. And so we might say, what do you mean I have to do this in order to be uh, in order for Christ to dwell? We know that Christ dwells in us, right? But I think it helps to know that there are two Greek words for dwell. One of them means like a hotel. It means that you're not permanently residing there. So if you were to go to a hotel, you might stay there. You might set up your tent and live there temporarily. But let's say you get a rental house. You, you go out, you get yourself a nice Airbnb. You walk in and you're like, this place is decorated horribly. I'm going to go ahead and get some paint. We got to splash some paint up here. I like murals of my kids. So we're going to put a mural over there of my kids. And then I'm going to put a couch over there. This TV has got to go. I need a nice big 80-inch. Let's knock down that wall. What do you think the owner of, the get, of that Airbnb is going to do? Well, you're going to be in some trouble. You don't have a, a permanent dwelling place there. So that's the first one, is, is pay, to take up a temporary residency. The, the second word for dwell is to take up permanent residency. What happens when you take up permanent residency? When it's your actual house, 
Well, you can start knocking out walls, right? You can do whatever you want. You own the place. This well is a second, is the, is the second use. It means to take up permanent residency and have ownership over. Oftentimes, we want Christ to take up the first one, to take up a second or a, a, a temporary residency. We say, Christ, come dwell in my heart, but you can't actually touch anything. Come dwell in my heart. Let, change the parts of my heart that I want to, to change. You know, if I want there to be some new paint, why don't you slap up some new paint, but don't knock down that wall. Don't rearrange the furniture. And so we tell Christ, dwell in my heart temporarily, but I still want control. I still want ownership. And what this is here is permanency, saying, Christ, my heart is yours. Change it. Rearrange it any way you wish. I am no longer the owner. But we can't get to that unless we are first being fortified through Scripture. So we get fortified through Scripture, then we let Christ take permanent residency up in our hearts, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And I think this is the, the third step right here, being rooted and grounded in love. So when he dwells in our hearts, that causes us to be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted is a gardening term, and it means to be nourished to be stable. Grounded is a, a building term, and it means to have a solid foundation. So first, we submit our hearts to Scripture that allows Christ to dwell in it, to change it, and through Christ dwelling in it and changing it, helps us to be stable and have a strong foundation in His love. Now, what happens when we're not rooted and grounded? We're unstable. And then when those things that would come and knock you over hit, you fall over. So the first step is to, to strengthen yourself through Scripture. The second step is to give Christ your heart so you have total ownership over it the third step leading to us being rooted and grounded. We will never be rooted and grounded unless we let Christ have ownership of our heart. The third or the fourth step building upon these is that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So this is the fourth step is that we would know the love of Christ. So we're rooted in his love, we're grounded in his love, we've got this foundation, but we still don't quite understand it. So what's interesting here is that he has used four terms to describe it. So this is a four-dimensional love. It's not three-dimensional, it's four-dimensional, and that gives us this idea that we can continue to explore God's love, that we'll never actually fully come to the end of it. So often we think that we will come to the end of something. There was this show called The Good Place a while ago, and it, it, was, uh, it was examining moral philosophy. And it had this like 
these people that were that went to hell, but they thought they went to heaven, and like they start doing all these experiments, and it all boils down to this idea that at some point you're gonna get bored of heaven. I'll just spoil alert for you guys. If you go through all of the seasons, it ends up with this idea that you're gonna get bored with heaven. And I could see why they'd come to that, because my mind can't comprehend the greatness of God. But to stop and think. For eternity, you will be able to explore the goodness of his love. And the more you explore, the more you will find that there is more to explore. How amazing is that? It reminds me, actually, of the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with that, you know, C.S. Lewis creates this whole world called Narnia. Narnia eventually has to end, but, but he creates, God creates a new world. And, and the tagline that Aslan continues to give is further up, further in. And the further up and the further in you go into this world, the more you realize that there's actually more of this world. And it's this idea that, man, it's so hard for us to comprehend, but that's the idea that we get here with Christ's love, is that the more we explore it, the further in, the further into it, the further we go into it, the actual more there is of it the deeper it gets. How amazing is that? So it's this idea, this four-dimensional, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now this term here, surpasses knowledge, oftentimes we, we make it think that it's like not understandable, that we can't have this knowledge. And that's not actually what's getting here. Uh, the term actually means that it, it is more and uh, intimate. The term is actually used for a man with his wife. That there's a level of intimacy here. So it doesn't surpass knowledge in that it is not understandable. It surpasses knowledge in that it's beyond knowledge. It's more of an intimacy. Going back to this idea of a, of a kid running up to their father. It's not just simple knowledge. We're kind of a, a celebrity-obsessed culture. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. But one thing that we do with celebrities is we memorize stuff about them, right? We memorize all kinds of facts. And so there are some people that know a celebrity they have memorized all this stuff. They know what their favorite food is, what their favorite television show, what kind of car, maybe even where they live. They know all these facts about them, but they don't even know them at all. And that's the way some people are with God. They've memorized a lot of facts, but they don't know Him. Compare that to how Jen knows me. She knows a lot of facts about me. In fact, she knows more facts about me than I know about myself. When I go to the doctors, I'm like, I should bring Jen with me because she can actually answer the questions right. Uh, but not only does she know all the facts about me, she knows me personally. She has this level of intimacy that I could never have with a celebrity. We can have that intimacy with God. 
not just to know the facts about him, but to know who he is, what motivates him, what makes him tick, to know his moods, his character. So what about you? Do you have a lot of facts memorized about God, but are missing the intimacy, truly knowing him and his character? So that's the fourth step, that after we're rooted and grounded in love, we begin to comprehend with all the saints this thing, and we get to really explore this great love and intimacy with Christ. But you can't have that intimacy without spending the time. You can't have that intimacy if you don't go back to that first step and examine the brain that we have here in our hands. You know, that's part of the problem, why people don't have that intimacy with the celebrities. They can study the facts all they want, but they actually haven't spent any time. Jen has spent numerous amount of hours with me, so she knows me very personally. So you've got to put the time in. You've got to start. You can't have intimacy with God. As much as you want to have intimacy with God, you can't have intimacy with Him without starting at step one, studying His Word. And then step two, letting him dwell and call the shots in your heart, which leads to step three, being rooted and grounded, being structurally secure in his love, which then we get to explore and be intimate in that love, which leads to step five, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this means to be fully mature in who God has created you to be. He has wired you uniquely you. He has given you a unique personality. All the way back in Ephesians 2.10, we see that he is, we are his workmanship. That term workmanship is poetry, or it's po- poetra, which we diver- get the term poetry from, and it means original artwork. Each one of us is an original of God. You are his original. He has not created anyone like you. And you can live fully who God has created you to be. But it starts off with going all the way back to to Scripture. To memorizing or writing it on our hearts. To examining it. To submitting to it. And then as we do that, He strengthens us so that He can dwell in our hearts. We all desire to be mature, to to fully be who God has created us to be. Even those who don't don't know God desire this. But they end up chasing the wind. Not knowing who God created them to be, because they don't have an intimacy with God. So they are constantly chasing things, hoping that one day they will find the thing that makes them feel wholly who they are. Sometimes they will go through such extravagant measures that they will begin to physically alter their bodies 
rejecting how God has made them to be something that they think they are because they want to feel fully mature. The only way to feel fully mature is to first examine the riches that He has given us. Being led by the Spirit, examining the Scriptures, will be strengthened, and then letting God have total control of our hearts so that we would be rooted and grounded in His love, that we would then be able to explore the intimacy that we have with Him, and that is when we can start to experience full maturity. Too often, we want to skip straight to the full maturity step. And then we get angry. God, why aren't you fully maturing me? God, why am I not experiencing you the way others do? And I've seen too many people walk away from the faith because they were never willing to put the work in to become fully mature. So he guides us to this full matureness, and then what other way can he close it but to praise God? So he ends 20 and 21 with this doxology, and this is actually the climax here of the letter. So all of the theology begins to point to verses 20 and 21, and then from 4 on will be an explanation or application of how we should live based on the, the theology that leads into 20 and 21. 20 and 21 are the climax. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So let's stop and think about this for a second because it's not like now who now to him who is able to do some stuff. I'm able to do some stuff. My two-year-old's able to do some stuff. It's not just he's able to do some stuff. It's not just that he's able to do far or he's able to do abundantly more. It's not even that he's able to do more abundantly. It's that he's able to do far more abundantly. That is so over the top. It's beyond our comprehension, right? That he is able to do more than all that we ask or think. Now think about Paul's situation as he writes this. He's in prison. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead. And here he is saying, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, what can compel him to write this? And what he's getting at, what he's driving at here is that God's plan is far greater than ours. That we don't even understand how great God's plan is. That although we're in the mess and the thick of it now, that all seems hopeless, that it seems like it's all going straight down the hole. That God's got something so much greater. And you think about Paul, and then you can look back and see all of the Christians throughout the, the history of Christianity who have died because of the gospel, and you can say, but God's got something greater. And in the midst of what we've got going on now, we can get caught up in the things of this world. And we can look at all of this and we can say, but God has something greater. God's got something greater in store for you. God's got something greater in store for me. 
and we might not even see it in this life. But there is something greater that God has in store. So he can do, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And this, this power that he has, this great power, is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So the, this is the prayer that Paul has for the church. And this is the prayer that we should be praying for each other. It's that we should pursue God's word. We should take it to heart. We should submit our lives to scripture. We should be exploring scripture so that we can be strengthened. And that beyond that, then the next step would be that we would let Christ dwell in our hearts, that he would take a permanent residency, that we wouldn't say, no, God, you know, you can put up paint, but you can't crash that wall. You can, you can redesign a lot, but there's still this one little room that I don't want you to touch. It would be saying, God, you got it all. Every single part of my heart is yours. That he would be calling the shots in our lives. We should be praying that for one another. And then that would lead us to be rooted and grounded, having a firm foundation in his love, knowing that His love is what strengthens us and keeps us going. And that we may have the ability to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, that we would have an intense intimacy with God that would lead to a maturity in one another. That we could become all that God has created us to be. It takes work. But it is so worth it. Is this something you pray for? Is this a prayer that you have for others in the church? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We understand that it is your word that is the basis of truth, You have revealed Yourself to us through it. You are the Creator of all, and therefore Your truth is objective. It is real, it is solid, it is what we can depend upon. And we pray that as we study it, Your Spirit would change our hearts. Help us to make You a permanent dwelling place in our hearts. That You would have total and complete control that we would be rooted and grounded in Your love so that we may experience an intimacy that only gets deeper and deeper and that we may be fully mature in who You have created us to be. And we pray all this to Your glory. In Your name we pray. Amen.